That familiar beep-beep as you walk away through a parking lot or garage is enough assurance for most that our car is both locked and safe. In my first book, When Gadgets Betray Us, I profiled a young streetwise car thief who graduated from using a pair of common scissors to steal expensive sport cars off the streets of Prague to using a common laptop to pop open the doors. The remote communication between a key fob and a car is encoded. Over the air, you can do what's called a replay attack by capturing the codes and replaying them. Or you can use a previously successful rollover sequence to calculate the key fob code of the next car from the same manufacturer. This is smart for a career criminal working independently of a gang since he could build his own database through trial and error. This is also risky. When he was arrested in 2006, the Prague Post reported that the thief had the codes for 150 stolen cars still on his laptop, enough evidence to convict him. The point here is that we aren't used to thinking about our cars as computing devices, and yet they are if common thieves are using laptops and mobile devices to gain access to them. What they do next inside the car is perhaps a bit more complicated, and it actually does require some sophisticated car knowledge. But let's be realistic. Automakers today aren't necessarily computer security experts, so they can't realistically be expected to secure our vehicles from all types of attack. Fortunately, there's a group of automotive hackers that are trying to help, and in a moment, you'll hear from one of them. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about hacking vehicles, starting with the basics of what is a CAN bus and why it's important, to whether we'll see a day when cars are subjected to ransomware attacks, and I'll conclude with some tools, books, and website resources that you can use to get started hacking cars yourself. In 2016, I took a two-day car hacking training session at Black Hat USA in Las Vegas. This was one year after the Jeep Cherokee remote hack. In that case, rather than just reporting the vulnerability, the researchers had some fun. They had a reporter in the driver's seat on a Missouri interstate during rush hour and captured on video how the researchers remotely turned off the brake system. The video led to Fiat Chrysler automobiles initiating one of the largest automotive recalls in U.S. history. And rightly so. Disabling the brakes on a moving vehicle is dangerous to the driver and to other vehicles on the road. But remote hacks of vehicles are rare for a number of reasons, as we will hear from someone who knows car systems both inside and out. Uh, I've, I've been working with and in the automotive industry. I live in the Detroit metro area, and I, uh, I'm obviously infamous and well-known uh, in some circles. That's Robert Leo, my car hacking instructor at Black Hat. He's from CAN Bus Hack, and he's also the founder of the annual Car Hacking Village at DEF CON. And he's been working with the automotive industry for years as a consultant and a hacker. I mean, it's a love-hate relationship, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and we do, we do work with them, right? That's what's interesting. Like, we work with them because they have reasons and needs for companies uh, to interact with 
their systems to test them, etc. But um, at the same time, you know, it, it's still a political battle as well. You know, you know, manufacturers aren't just one person, you know, like, like big companies aren't one person. And that's the thing that I've learned over the years. Like you could meet one person who hates me, doesn't want to talk, talk to, uh, to Robert, but at the same time in that same organization, there may be a group of 10 people who are like, Hey, let's hire him because he knows he's the best guy for the job. Right. So, um, so it's just sort of a, it's, 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 it's a mixed emotion kind of thing. Before we can start to hack a car, we need to understand how a car works. With the exception of a Tesla, perhaps, not many are designed as a computer system on wheels. Rather, cars today consist of dozens of individual computers, actually embedded systems or microcontrollers that need to communicate and coordinate with each other almost instantaneously. So you don't have one computer, you actually have many throughout the vehicle. Yeah, so there, there. You'll have individual controllers. Um, one might be attributed to the, like the brake and the traction control system. It like handles all of them at the same time, and and because it's connected to the braking system, it doesn't necessarily apply the brakes, um, but it monitors the braking system if there's any failures. Or you might have one that's connected to the engine. It's managing the engine. So if the engine needs to fire a particular cylinder, it manages that. It manages the fuel, the air fuel ratio, etc. So. These individual microcontrollers are called electronic control units, or ECUs. That's correct, electronic control units, yep. The exact number of these ECUs varies depending on the price of the car or the needs of the manufacturer. It just depends on what the goal is of the manufacturer, uh, if that's the best way to describe it. So some cars, their goal is to sell them really low cost, right? So they'll only put a few of these controllers in there to save on cost because they're kind of expensive. Whereas some manufacturers are going for features, not necessarily cost. So the more features, the more controllers you'll typically have because the controllers kind of manage the features that are in the vehicle. Yeah. Some of these microcontroller ECUs are binary. They're either on or they're off. Although some have gotten to be pretty sophisticated over time. Yeah. So, I mean, there, it, that's changing ever so slightly, um, you know, with modern vehicles, they're, they're becoming, a, they're actually becoming like, they're running Ubuntu, they're running um, Android operating system. Um, so, so some controllers are very basic, you know, the engine controller, its job is really simple, fire some cylinders. It just, it does this, a lot of simple things, just hundreds and hundreds of simple things. Whereas you think about, um, you know, on a Tesla, maybe your center display might have to display the map and have some apps loading. You got your, um, you got uh, Spotify running, you know, all of those other things. So, so those are more computers, what we're used to the standard interface. So it just depends on what it's, again, the goal of that particular controller. What unites these microcontrollers is not an operating system. Rather, it's a bus. What's that? A bus is a communication system that transfers data between components. It does so by sending that data to all the ECUs at once. And if it's meant for the brakes, then that ECU will respond. All the others will listen for the next packet. It might be for them. I guess, you know, it's funny. Yesterday I was explaining this. I have ten year, two 10-year-old twins. I was explaining this exact question to them. So I'll pretend like I'm explaining it to two 10-year-old twins because I know how to do this now. Um, a CAN bus is a controller area network and essentially links controllers, which are 
ostensibly computers that are in the vehicle um, to each other so they can all talk at the same time. But it the, the unique part is it's a bus. So when one controller sends a message, because it's a bus topology of a network, all of the messages are received simultaneously by all of the other nodes, which gives it a unique, some unique features that maybe you won't see in like an ethernet style typical network. Ethernet is a wired network. You're probably familiar with an ethernet in an office network computing system. Here too, it is designed to route large amounts of data quickly. So some vehicles are starting to add, um, and, and have been for a little while, but uh, it's becoming more of a thing. Uh, they're adding ethernet, but not your typical ethernet, your four wire, two pair, or, or, or three pair ethernet. Um, you're getting uh, a, a single pair, so two wire ethernet. Apart from the brakes and lights and such that are needed to operate the car, manufacturers have been investing more and more in interesting dashboards which require web browsers, which allow for apps to be downloaded and run from the internet. They're using it to transfer data, like uh, it, like reflashing controllers. They're using it for media systems, multimedia, to take data from the internet, like Spotify or things like that, and display and display information. Even newer cars have sophisticated crash avoidance systems that require active sensors throughout the vehicle, and that requires even more data available through the automotive Ethernet. Um, some of the new cars that are going to be coming out have uh, LiDAR. LiDAR stands for light detection and ranging, and it's used to measure distances. Say, how far away is that car ahead of you? And LiDAR is really, it's got a lot of data. Um, CAN bus just couldn't handle the amount of data that's coming through that. Audio video data is going through there. Um, just things that need more bandwidth. That CAN bus has a lot of limitations with, with regard to bandwidth, but it does really good for real time, but really bad for bandwidth. And so for bandwidth intensive applications, uh, Ethernet really solves that problem. Interesting side topic. To reduce fuel consumption, the automotive industry has been trying to reduce the overall weight of the car. Given that we are adding Ethernet systems to every car, that's actually a substantial amount of weight that just goes for cabling, cabling in any car. To some degree, CAN bus, or even more than one CAN bus, does cut down on the amount of cabling required. Yeah, the CAN bus is... It's the best, I mean, just like a network in your, in your office, it's the best way to get, you know, data from one to the other, because if your display wants to display the vehicle speed, right, the only way to really get that information without, without having a wire running directly from the display to a sensor at the wheel or at some motor that's outputted to the wheel is to get it from a network that where that controller is already set, sensing the value. So why not share it? And, and yeah, so they'll connect these things to the, to the CAN bus. So you're probably wondering why there isn't one holistic operating system for every car. Well, that's not how the computerization of automobiles came about. So how did we get to not having an operating system? Well, I yes. mean, some of them do have operating systems. So it's really in the beginning, like operating systems take a lot of memory, resources, and they, they're slow. Cars are life-critical systems. Decisions need to be made in nanoseconds. You tap on the brake, you expect a response instantaneously. Having a full-on operating system, it lacks the speed you can get with a CAN bus. 
I mean, they're way too slow to fire an engine. You can't run an operating system. If you're running like even a, a real-time Linux, you probably couldn't do a very good job of, of activating the cylinders on your, on your engine controller. So even an operating system, it has its limitations. And so why even bother? You know, if, if you can't do the application because of the limitation, why even bother with an operating system in that situation? So, so forego an operating system, run your application directly on the controller and um, and just run it in C, right? Like there's no reason to have an operating system except for building applications on top of it that manage resources. And like, if you're building everything like it's monolithic, it's really not as important of a, of a requirement. That's not to say the average car is ancient and unchanging. Given the efficiency of a CAN bus, you're starting to see more and more CAN buses layered on top of each other. I recently saw a future specification for a vehicle that included 8080 CAN buses. 80, which was, it was sort of like the, this is everything possible, not necessarily what will be there, but this is everything. If, if we were to make a vehicle and we put everything on it, which we won't, you know, this is like our, our roadmap we can select and choose, but that one had 80 um, CAN buses on it. So what they're doing is they're moving away from CAN bus being like the central um, way that controllers will communicate. And it's more of, they're kind of pushing it to the edges. They're kind of making the CAN bus the control between like the, the thing that needs the control to happen and the actual controller that's performing the function so that it still has some real-time aspects of it while allowing ethernet automotive ethernet as a backbone. So you can have like a gigabit backbone and like hundred megabit like branches uh, to a CAN bus. It's, it's quite interesting what the concept, the new concepts are um, that they're coming out with. So now that we have a basic understanding of what's going on inside the average car, let's start over again. Why would anybody want to hack a car? Well, for me personally, I like to uh, change features on my car. I like to um, not not like I like to add and modify features of my own car. So I kind of started where I wanted to. I started way back, a long, long, long time ago. Actually, before Canvas was really in cars, I added a computer to my car back before they were doing. Really, were adding like like you had nav systems. So that's how long I've been hacking cars. And so I really was interested in, in in integrating a computer with my car so I could do more controls. And I think that's a really valid reason to hack a car just for your own personal use. Perhaps because cars lack a homogenized operating system, the communications over the CAN bus tends to be proprietary. I found this particularly frustrating in Robert's class at Black Hat. You'd have to listen to the communication over the CAN bus and then observe the end result on the ECU to understand what each signal means. Each manufacturer uses its own signals, and it's almost like being back at square one. That's because the auto manufacturers didn't communicate how they built their systems out and developed them independently. Some of that was on purpose. They're, they're silos in of themselves, like everything is built. In fact, it's intentionally designed to be completely different from their competitors because that's their competitive advantage, right? The, the fact that they're not sharing this information. Now that is slowly eroding. We're starting to see a little bit more standardization, at least conceptually standardization, because it's getting way more complicated, especially as they add ethernet. So they really need to like 
all of the manufacturers are kind of coming together in these consortiums to 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 work together over the similar problems just because the cost um, is super high. Now they'll still keep their competitive advantage, but they'll write software for smaller modules that make their vehicles a little bit more unique. Whereas the things that everybody, the problem that everybody's got to solve, they're kind of pushing that up to these consortiums that are solving instead. They're, they're supplying their own engineers to be a part of the consortiums, but they're, they're letting these consortiums kind of work it out together so that everybody kind of makes better tools and things like that to, to work. So there are some immediate positives to having Toyotas communicate one way and Mercedes communicate entirely a different way. Figuring out how to hack a Hyundai doesn't mean that you can go down the street and hack a Ford. That, that is absolutely the case, yes. And that's, I think that's a, this security through just, you know, just a, you know, not, not being all part of the same uh, ecosystem. I think it's a really good uh, term. Um, because these, they have different suppliers, essentially, that, that are supplying these tel- telemetry control systems, because of that, um, you know, the, the GPAC that happened, you know, in 2016, so back when you were getting, taking my course, um, that hack affected one of the suppliers, which was a company called Harman, and they... Um, they just didn't password protect something. I mean, it was as simple as that. Like that, if they had added a password, it would have made that a little bit more difficult. Not necessarily impossible, but more difficult to to uh, propagate that particular uh, bug. The researchers who hacked the Jeep Cherokee found a bug in the Harman Kaden head unit in the dashboard. Harman is a common supplier to many automotive manufacturers. So why didn't Ford or GM have the same problem? Well, it's in the way in which Fiat Chrysler automobiles happen to implement it. When you look at the General Motors, they didn't suffer from the same attack because it was a different manufacturer, different everything about it. Nothing was the same, not the way the servers connected, not the the password, you know, all of that stuff was completely different. And so they weren't affected at all. So they, they had a different operating systems. Like if you wrote a virus for a Mac and you, or you wrote a virus for a PC, it wouldn't, they wouldn't affect each other. Up until recently, cars didn't connect directly to the internet. Now, some cars have their own cellular connections for navigation systems and telemetry. Now, cars have the ability to connect directly to the internet and download apps. If you recall from the early days of PCs, (laughs) internet connection, that's when all the fun and games started happening with worms and viruses. And more recently, with ransomware. I can neither confirm nor deny that maybe there are potential um, ransomware applications that uh, are possible, especially as they're interconnecting these vehicle systems to the internet, right? So in the beginning, you know, we think about, and a lot of people might not have been around at the time, but before the internet, you know, me, I'm one of those lucky guys who gets to remember before the internet, if you had a virus, you transferred over floppy disks, right? And that was a really slow way for a virus to propagate. Um, and that's kind of where cars are and have been for a long time. If there was a virus, it didn't propagate very well, very easily. You had to connect you to each individual vehicle to propagate that virus, not a very efficient means of transport. Um, but as we start to connect these things to the internet, we have to be aware um, that it's possible, although unlikely, because it's still a very monolithic system, um, that ransomware could be entered into the equation. It's it's very low probability because the the 
the company that controls the connection or the pipe is the company that makes the car or, or is it affiliated with the company that makes the car and they have high, very strict controls over it. Um, but as that changes, um, which it's likely going to, we could see some real interesting effects, uh, unintended or intended effects um, re regarding um, that. But that's, that's neither here nor there. As far as I know, there hasn't been any confirmed ransomware cases. Um, so hacking the cars is just dependent on the application or whatever, uh, whatever application you're trying to, to do. As cars become more computerized, only the dealerships had a way to unlock them. This makes it challenging then for the corner mechanic to service different makes and models of cars. And that's perhaps why you see these independent shops starting to specialize in specific makes and models. Someone or some organization then needed to step in and track what's going on in these different systems. There is a company or a, an organization called eTools that, um, that is sort of the clearinghouse for diagnostic information that the manufacturers are required by law per the Right to Repair Act. Now, they don't give it out to individuals. They give it out to companies that are building tools that will connect um, to the system. So it's, it's the requirement is um, not that individuals have access, not in the United States, that, that has actually changed recently for um, persons in the state of Massachusetts, where the laws are a little bit different. I talked about the right to repair movement in episode 14 with Paul Roberts, who happens to live in Massachusetts. That state has some of the most progressive right to repair laws on the books, and that state is more or less responsible for the data that we can access from our cars. But every other state sort of follows this right to repair um, where tool companies can be a part of eTools if they want to, and for the most part, get all of the diagnostic information that a, a scan tool, which is a the, the service tool that a dealership might use, that they plug in and say, hey, what's wrong with your car? They don't want just the dealerships to have access to that solely and create a monopoly. They they allow other companies to make their own tools. Um, and that's what eTools essentially is its charters to, to help those other companies with the data. Automakers already had an onboard diagnostics port, an OBD but it was located in the engine area. Perhaps in response to early right-to-repair requests, the automotive industry started sharing more information about a second onboard diagnostics port, or OBD2, one located not more than two feet away from the steering column of any vehicle for easy access. It's a 16-pin J1962 female connector that provides an external interface into the inner workings of the automobile. That's 100%. Yeah, that's what it's, it's designed for using the OBD2 port. Yeah. Now, there are specific packets of data that can be retrieved from the OBD2 port, such as error codes. But this also creates, in some cases, the opportunity to externally pass information back to the CAN bus. Realizing this, automakers put in some safeguards. In fact, yes. In fact, that's one of the big takeaways from the, um, the GPAC that Chrysler did and still others are catching up to is they added what they what they call their secure gateway. The Chrysler secure gateway is a kind of firewall that doesn't allow everyone to send data to the car. It has to be controlled by the vendor, and in order to access certain diagnostic functions, the secure gateway requires registration and authentication through an approved device for aftermarket use. The challenge is the OBD2 port is kind of this 
anybody can plug into it. You know, if somebody has access to it, they can plug into it and do some interesting things. And in my classes, I've taught people how to just send diagnostic messages. And some of those diagnostic messages are really quite simple. Um, sending a message to turn the windshield wipers on. Okay, that seems like that would distract you, of course. But what if your windshield wipers were already on? and you want to turn them off. Now that's more than a distraction, especially in heavy rain. Now you can't see out of the windshield. Um, or at the same time, you can modif modify the volume on a lot of cars. You can also disable the fuel pump. Uh, you know, and you, if, you, if you activate multiple features simultaneously, um, while somebody's driving down the road, I mean, that is that, you know, as a, as a single person attack, that's really, really challenging. And so the Chrysler Gateway actually treats the OBD2 port as a hostile network, essentially, that anything that's coming through there should not be considered, um, especially commands should not be easily, um, easily used. Of course, with every security solution, someone has already found a way to defeat the secure gateway. There are, for example, cables that require you to have physical access to the car and effectively defeat the gateway that way. Now, if you bypass that security, if you bypass it, like you plug in somewhere else down the line, any of the other controllers that might have a connection to the, uh, the CAN bus, yeah, all of those, all of those uh, precautions are gone. The, the controllers accept individually, they'll accept those messages as like, okay, that's authentic. it's went through the secure gateway, so it must be authentic, I'll do the thing. And so they'll still listen, but you now have to physically move move to a different location. That being said, they're very, it's very nice of them. They actually include that physical location. Like there are still ports that you can plug into um, that are accessible. So if you have physical access to the vehicle, you know, just like anybody, if you have physical access to the vehicle, you could like pull a brake wire, you know, you can, you can do some really interesting things to the vehicle. So that being said, there is a way to bypass it, but it's, it's through a front door, like a, a system that they've created um, to uh, like certificates and authentication and things like that. So you have to be a dealer and have a dealership login and you use the dealership and they audit that. So they have some traceability, at least if this were to happen to somebody. All of these scenarios assume that a hostile attacker would have access to the car or physically be inside the car. Their threat model isn't attacks? so much like if somebody has physical access, we should stop them. It's really if somebody has access remotely. And so they also do the same thing with their um, with their tele telematics unit. So the thing that's connected to the internet is also on the same side of the network that the OBD2 port is. So they prevent, hopefully prevent that same kind of attack. Now, that being said, there's probably some methods around it, but you know, not too many people are talking about those right now. <laughs> Independent of the OBD2 port, there are other wireless means of getting inside the car. I remember Dr. Stefan Savage at the University of San Diego used the tire pressure sensor monitor. Why? Well, if the wheel is rotating at 100 times RPM, you can't have a physical cable connecting the tire to the car. You need a radio frequency connection, which can be intercepted and hacked. And that's what Savage's researchers did. On an airport tarmac, they pulled alongside the target vehicle and were able to hijack the TPSM RF signal. Mind you, they could only make the dashboard warning light go on or off, but still, it was a viable attack. 
Yeah, the the tire pressure and, and keyless entry systems are all RF. Um, it just, you know, the challenge is because you're not really talking to an operating system, you're really limited to what inputs have been either accidentally or on, you know, purposefully um, uh, put there for you to 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 send messages to. And for the tire pressure monitoring system, you may be able to like obviously affect the the drivers thought of well what's the tire pressure at and should i pull over on the side of the road right now and that's clearly a you know that could be used as an attack vector and so there's some vulnerabilities there savage's work predated vulnerabilities in modern telematics today there are certainly large amounts of data going up to the cloud and then back down to the car like the proprietary CAN bus signals, there is a cloud data pipe that is still controlled by the vendors. It is currently still very much in control um, by the vendors. They they have a stranglehold on it. Um, I know that there's recently, again, Massachusetts, very progressive. Um, they're trying to get access to the tel- telematics data that's going back and forth as well because the original Right to Repair Act actually excluded telemetry data, and now they're just trying to re-add it back in there. Um, to the extent that I, you know, I can talk about it, like there are a lot, there's a lot of information. It just depends on the manufacturer, what data they're going to transfer back and forth. And really they can change it anytime they want because they can do an over air update to the telematics controller. And almost everybody supports this now, um, some way to like modify what data and what, what features can be updated at least over the air to the telemetry controller. Some telemetry systems include over-the-air updates, which is good. Ford used to send out a USB to its customers and ask them to sit in the driveway while the car was running in park while it installed the update. Most of us get these updates when we take our cars in for the dealer service. Other manufacturers, though, like Mercedes and certainly Tesla, simply push out the updates over the air. Mostly this is done for safety-critical updates, but occasionally there are added features as well. Some vehicles went so far as to even add it to so pass the telemetry controller. I can update another controller. I, I drive a Tesla, and they do this all the time. There's constantly software updates, and they update the entire vehicle. Um, and that's a little bit more rare, but it's becoming you know, the commonplace. There's a lot of value in that. And, um, and so there's a lot of data. There's a lot of information. Um, but they don't really disclose what that is. And uh, even if you read the terms of service, they kind of just talk about it as a general blob of data. I've had, uh, um, I've had experiences talking with some manufacturers, I won't say who, but for the most part, a lot of the data that goes up from the car is, is like you, if you use their telemetry service, you're opting in to them collecting anonymized, you know, like any any like web browser, anonymized data about your vehicle use, right? So they want to know how you use the vehicle. And I had an opportunity to talk to an engineer about that. And he's like, it's great information because there people drive differently all the time. And now we can like understand how people drive so we can make, write our software. So there's a lot of value in that. And, and to the extent that, that that's what it's being used for, great. But, you know, you really don't know what other features they could be grabbing from that information. So there's always a challenge and, you know, for the most part it's opt-in. So you, you have to choose to use the service Um, on the Tesla itself. There's like a, you can opt out of, you know, them collecting that, that same data. So they, they are at least smart um, as far as how letting you control what information you have and you don't have on, 
uh, being sent up to the cloud for like manufacturer stuff. Now, if you add an aftermarket device, that might be a totally different story. <laughs> in general, the remote or outside attacks on vehicles remain in the realm of fiction. There, I like to, I, I'm a kind of like an inside out approach because if you try to attack the vehicle from the, uh, from the exterior, it's kind of like it's hardened shell. It's a much more difficult attack vector, but from the inside out, they really don't protect it in that, in the same way. So you can learn a lot more about the vehicle systems by attacking from the inside out. And then what's great is, you know, we talked about, yeah, there's an ecosystem for a particular manufacturer, but if you have a vehicle of a particular manufacturer and you find some exploit from the outside in, you can now apply it to another vehicle of that same manufacturer typically. You know, you know, as long as the year, make model year are very similar, they probably have the same kind of vulnerability. Robert and his team returned to DEF CON 29 this year in Las Vegas. This interview was actually recorded just before that event. Tell them to go back in time and go to DEF CON. You know, for the most part, we're really excited. We, we've worked really hard on, you know, having a safe environment for, um, for our CTF, and we hope that people join us. Um, we, we're trying to make sure we still maintain social distancing on our CTF, and, and in, in vehicles, we're trying to be as remote as possible so they don't have to actually go and connect and sit in vehicles themselves. So we're really working hard to make sure that that happens. Um, and, you know, obviously every DEF CON's requiring masks. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're vaccinated and you feel, um, feel like this is a good uh, fit for you, come join the, uh, the Car Hacking Village and our CTF. Um, and we're really excited to have, uh, you know, an in-person event. This will be my first in-person con since, you know, since March of 2020. So I'm really looking forward to it. 2019 was the last time I was at DEF CON. And I remember there were a lot of activities going on in the car hacking village. For example, there were cars to hack. There were talks. There was even a capture the flag event. Well, I'm just trying to get a general interest in the concept of hacking cars. Like, for the most part, we like we have a CTF. Um, we started year two of the, of the Car Hacking Village. We started a, a CTF, and from that, it's been, it was super successful. We had a lot of teams joining. It's a really great way for people to just start into like car hacking. So this year, we're going to have two two individual CTFs because we're hybrid, and so we wanted to make sure there was one virtual for 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 people who couldn't attend uh, or, or just aren't able to, for various reasons, attend DEF CON in person. So we'll have a, we'll have a virtual CTF. Um, and then we'll also have an in-person one. We're gonna keep them a little bit separate because we wanna, we wanna make it uh, still fun in games for the people who are, who are there uh, in person. And, and the, the thing is we give away prizes and we can't really, some of the prizes are pretty big. They're hard to mail. So we can't really give them away in any other way, but in person anyway. So we just figured let's just have an in-person one. So the goal is not necessarily to hack vehicles. And I mean, disable the vehicles with some sort of catastrophic new exploit, but rather to familiarize people with the general concepts of hacking. So our goal here is to just, you know, have a general interest, meet the, make a community out of it, right? Not necessarily in it. Not necessarily to to talk about exploits or really even get to that level, because for the most part, like to get an exploit on a vehicle is a significant challenge, right? Like any exploit in the world doesn't matter if it's a car or a PC takes research and understanding, and so 
you can't have an exploiter, you can't get into that field until you start understanding what a CAN bus is or what attack surfaces are. And so that's really our main goal is to just through gamification of CTF and other uh, events there to have people interact with vehicle hardware that they are might be afraid to do otherwise on their own vehicle. Ah, yes, that. Do you hack your own vehicle, which has considerable value to you, or do you need to go out and buy a vehicle just for the purpose of hacking? The number one thing that I like sort of restraint that I get from people when they want to get into car hacking is, well, they may have a car, but they don't want to hack their own car. They like, they're afraid that they're going to hurt their own car. Okay. I feel there needs to be a disclaimer here to hack your own car at your own risk. I do not personally recommend this. There are tools that you can buy that can adequately emulate a car's system. I mean, I, to some extent, I get that, you know, especially when you're new, you don't want to like hurt your own car, but you probably won't. Like they don't make these cars in such a way that they're going to break so quickly and so easily. You really have to intentionally do something to your car before it really, really stops working. And, and what's great about like, if you mess up your computer or some software on your computer, what do you do? You turn it off and back on again. Well, same thing happens with cars. You take the battery off to put the battery back on. They're usually back to normal. Um, in my, you know, 10, 11, oh man, even more than that, 20, 12, 15, 15 years now of like actually doing a uh, vehicle, uh, like hacking, I have only ever accidentally made a one vehicle not work. And it was always a possibility when I was doing, I knew when I launched the attack, I was like, this is a possibility that, that I could accidentally make this thing not work anymore. And that was just happened once, you know what I mean? So it wasn't, it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened. So, so what are some of the other barriers to entry besides the fear of bricking your own car? Well, I mean, I would start with getting some some relatively inexpensive hardware, off-the-shelf hardware. There's a bunch of really good um, tools out there. Our, our friend um, Eric Evancheck makes something called the Cannibal. Our friends over at Makina make something called M2. Um, our friends at Intrepid Control Systems make ValueCan, and they are actually our badge this year is going to be a really cool um, CAN bus interface tool. I mean, our badges are usually our CAN bus interface tools at the at the village. Um, so, um, you know, you, there's a bunch of different relatively low cost tools. Um, uh, one of the other guys who runs the UK version of the Car Hacking Village has a tool. His name is MintyNet. He has a um, his own CAN bus tools. There's a lot of a lot of people making CAN bus tools. Now there are other networks. There's Automotive Ethernet, which our badges have supported in the past and continue to again this year. There is uh, Linbus, which our badge again this year is going to support. So there's other network interfaces, but you know, start there. So is it possible for someone to just buy these tools or gain access to these tools and then start playing around on their own? I would also recommend the Car Hackers Handbook. I always do, Craig Smith, and um, we have Hacking Connected Cars by um, Alyssa Knight. Those are really two good books to start. They're the only two that I'm aware of right now. There probably are some other good books. And there's other good like engineering level books. There's a million other engineering level books that exist out there. On There's one on automotive ethernet, um, the same company that um, makes the value can, makes a automotive ether book called intrepid control systems it's available on amazon i think it's like a hundred dollars so it's not cheap but it's not and it's not irreproachable it's a very big book um there's a lot of like learning material on 
vehicle network systems and and other vehicle uh, and vehicle hacking. So you know, start obviously start with books. And the Car Hacking Village appears at other conferences as well. And we're going to be at GERCON again this year. So that's in Grand Rapids. Um, I'm originally from Grand Rapids myself, so it's my local con. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll also be there. So I highly encourage everybody to join us. That, that will bring cars to as well. It's a big enough event that we can actually bring cars. It's not as big of a CTF, but it's a lot of fun and it's a great place to learn. Typically, we'll have like five or six events, you know, different conferences. Um, in the United States. And then we have a guy who, uh, uh, MintyNet, he runs the Car Hacking Village UK. So he'll have some UK events and potentially he might dip down into the, the, the other parts of Europe. Um, we have Jay Trula, he runs it in Philippines. So we have a few different um, uh, collaborators and runner people who run the village in other places. And we're always looking for more. So if, if you want to run a Car Hacking Village, you know, let us know. We'll give you some more information about some of the like our, our, our um, like what you can and can do kind of like part of that but you know we'd love to have other people running villages in other locations the car hacking village has a website and it is kept up to date not only are we online like virtual this year we have our own discord as well so you can go to carhackingvillage.com and check get a link to our discord and, and join that and ask a bunch of other car hackers you know how do i want to get started here um you know that's probably the best bet I really want to thank Robert for being on the show. I learned a lot from him at Black Hat, and you can too. Check out thecarhackingvillage.com to learn more about the activities at the Car Hacking Village at DEF CON. And also check out canbushack.com, which is Robert's site, if you ever need to hire a car hacker. You know, you just might someday. Hey, let's keep this conversation going. I'd really like to know what your experiences have been with car hacking. The Hacker Mind is on subreddit, and it even has its own Discord channel. Go to thehackermind.com about to learn more, or DM me directly at Robert Famosi on Twitter. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free every two weeks by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I'm your CAN bus-enabled Robert Famosi.